Hello and welcome again to the Basic Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Thompson. And joining us today, I'm honored to have on the phone, uh, Tullian Chivijan. Tullian, welcome to our podcast. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me. And may I say at the outset that you said my first and last name perfectly. That you know, is that, that was going to be my first question if I butchered your name completely. No, you said it perfectly. I'm shocked, actually. I usually have to spend the first couple minutes of an interview correcting the interviewer's pronunciation of my name, and now we don't have to spend any time on that because you said it first. <laughs> well, this is an absolute <laughs> first for me, so I'm <laughs> Well, Tony, oh. you've written uh, quite a bit. You, you've got your own blog. We're going to give the address to that out uh, in just a few minutes. Um, and I have been blessed by your writing ministry, your speaking ministry, and so I, I really want to say thanks for, for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm honored. Well, we're jumping right into our topic. Our topic is simply the gospel. And you would think, all right, this is this is a theological podcast. We don't want to talk about the gospel. That's that's kind of like more really, really basic, rudimentary stuff. We want to get into some more, uh, you know, really hardcore, uh, ultra-lapsarian or hypostatic union or something. But I find that most people, many Christians, don't even understand what the gospel is. And so I want to start off with that. So, Tullian, could you describe for us, what do we mean when we mean the gospel? What are we talking about? Because there's gospel everything now. So, what exactly is the gospel? Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, first of all, let me say that I fell into the category of person you just described uh, for many years, growing up inside the church and growing up going to Christian schools and youth group and youth retreats. I went to a Christian college, went to seminary even. Uh, was pastoring a church, first as an associate pastor, then a church planter, um, went through the whole ordination process with the denomination that I was ordained in, and it did not dawn on me until I had been pastoring a church for nearly five years that the gospel was just as important for Christians as it is for non-Christians. For me, growing up, the gospel was synonymous with evangelism only that the gospel is what people outside the church need. But then once God saves you, he moves you beyond the gospel into something deeper, into something more meaty, that the gospel really is kind of the ABCs of the Christian faith. But what I discovered, both from the Bible and confirmed in my own life experience, is that once God saves you, he doesn't then move you beyond the gospel. He moves you more deeply into the gospel, that the gospel really isn't the ABCs of the Christian faith, but you know, as Tim Keller says, it's the A to Z of the Christian faith. Uh, and so I really think, you know, it's it's fascinating to me. I was speaking to a group of people at our the church that my wife and I uh, worship at uh, here on the southwest coast of Florida, and I was speaking to a group of them the other night, uh, and I said, you know, I, in many ways, was sort of born into Christian royalty. I was surrounded by the best of everything that evangelicalism had to offer. Um, In terms of churches and influences and schools and professors and teachers and all of that stuff. And the fact that it hadn't dawned on me until I was already pastoring a church that the gospel was just as necessary for Christians as it is for non-Christians made me step back and go, something's off about the messaging and even the training of the messengers 
for the evangelical church if I could have been exposed to the best of what evangelicalism has to offer. And I had never heard growing up in any way, shape, or form. It was never explicitly taught, nor was it implied, that I needed the gospel just as much after God saved me as I did before. I'm thinking, okay, this is this has got to be recovered. This is this really has to be sort of uh, recovered. And so when that hit me, this was probably 2008, maybe 2007. When that hit me, uh, it changed everything about the way I preached, about the way I wrote, about the way I thought about God, sin, grace, the human condition, all of that stuff. Uh, and I really became a one-message preacher and writer. In fact, all of my books, uh, especially the last four, are really saying the same thing. They're just coming at it from a different angle because I really do think that uh, if a revival could be described as a uh, discovery of the gospel from people outside the church. Uh, I would say a reformation could be described as a rediscovery of the gospel by people inside the church. And so I think it's an in incredibly important topic, uh, and it's very important. And, and, and there are some encouraging signs out there that uh, there is a much greater awareness now than there was when I was growing up that the gospel is central to the Christian life. Um, and so I would describe, you know, I mean, there's a, a hundred different ways to describe the gospel. Obviously, the word gospel means good news. Uh, and I think that's a super important thing to harp on because, um, you know, we can attach the word gospel to just about anything. And in my life and ministry, one of the and it has it really has. And in my life and ministry, uh, I have spent a lot of time. Uh, and spilled a lot of ink on distinguishing between God's two words, law and gospel. And oftentimes, if those two good words from God, law and gospel, are not distinguished, then uh, the law gets softened into something I can do, and the gospel gets hardened into something I must do. And so I think it's important to keep the both are good, both have unique job descriptions. Both come from God. Um, but I think it's really important to distinguish those two and to guard the gospel, so to speak, as the declaration that God has done for us in Jesus what we could never do for ourselves, that God has secured for us in Jesus what we could never secure for ourselves. So there's kind of like this objective understanding of the gospel. It is something that has already happened outside of us. It's the finished work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's it's in my place condemned. He stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. We've been singing that for generations as a church, that the focus of the Christian faith is Christ's substitution, not my transformation. It's the root of the Christian faith. Um, I think that's really important. And then there's this sort of subjective uh, apprehension of that objective truth, which is Jesus has secured for me all of the love, all of the value, all of the significance, all of the approval and acceptance that I long for and that most of us spend our times looking for in other relationships or career accomplishments or the accumulation of things or the well-being of our children or the health of our marriage or whatever it may be. Uh, and so I think it's um, 
I think it's at the end of the day, I like to simply say the gospel is good news. It's it's it is that uh, sort of dynamic that comes from God to us that enables us to breathe easy and to exhale and to realize that this whole thing is not about what I do or don't do, but what Jesus has done for right. me, which Romans eight makes very clear. Yeah. Romans eight, even, you know, Ephesians two, eight and nine, yeah. right. Grace you saved by faith that not of yourselves. And I, I think of, of Romans chapter four, where Paul clearly makes a distinction between works and grace. Yeah. If it's any part works, it's not grace. Right. Uh, but then I think the problem then becomes, and you've hit on this already, is that we we acknowledge that everybody acknowledge. Well, within the the Orthodox evangelical community, we all acknowledge that salvation doesn't involve works at all. But now, once we're saved, then I I feel like in the minds of some, there's a switch, and now we are somehow kept saved by our works. Now we have to, um, some of the language we use is we have to now prove that faith. And if we don't have enough works, well then now we're, maybe we weren't saved in the first place. And we add on not necessarily even the, the works of the law, meaning the old Testament law, but now we have a whole new set of standards and a new set of man-made religious regulations that we, that we have to keep. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, anybody who is committed to preaching uh, grace alone, a no strings attached uh, declaration of God's one way love to sinners like us, uh, any one of us who are committed to that, to c- committed to sharing that, writing that, preaching that, speaking that. Uh, whatever the case may be, at some point, they will be asked this question. Yes, I get it, but aren't there a whole host of things that we are told to do? Aren't there a whole host of things in the Bible that instruct us on how we should live? And of course, my answer to that is yes, Uh, but we cannot, uh, the way one person put it, is we cannot use sanctification to renegotiate our justification, which is a fancy way of saying that um, it's not it took Jesus's blood, sweat and tears to get me in. And now it requires my blood, sweat and tears to keep me in. And I think this is where, um, you know, this is where Paul and Romans, as he's uh, describing that golden chain of salvation that, you know, those who he foreknew, he predestined, those who predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. And as uh, Mike Horton has said a number of times, there are no human fingerprints on that golden chain. And I think there is something scary for us when we give God entirely, when it's, when everything from beginning to end is up to God. It seems to send fear down the spine of some people who think, well, if this whole thing is right, if the focus of the Christian faith is not the life of the Christian, but the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, his active obedience, his passive obedience, his law-fulfilling life, his death-defeating death, 
uh, and his resurrection, which promises and delivers new life. If this whole thing is riding, then what what stimulus do we have to be good, to avoid bad things and to pursue the things that God instructs us to pursue and the kinds of descriptions that he gives in the Bible for the free life, you know, in Ephesians where he says, husbands, love your wives and wives, follow your husband's lead and children, you know, uh, obey your parents and parents don't embitter your children and all of that stuff. He's describing what freedom on the ground looks like. And whenever I would preach through a passage like that, I would say, uh, what does your home feel like when these things are not at work? It feels heavy. It feels hard. It feels tense. Um, and I said, so what Paul's giving us here is a description, a blueprint for freedom, what freedom on the ground in, in the context of our relationships in our life looks like. Uh, it's not, if you don't do this, God will stop loving you. Or if you fail the, at this, uh, God will stop loving you. That's what's meant when, uh, when I just said we can't reuse sanctification to renegotiate our justification. I think God makes it very clear that sanctification is love for God and love for others. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, well, what produces love for God and love for others? Is it telling people love God and love others? Does the command itself generate the desire to do it? And of course, Paul and throughout all his letters makes it very clear that the law can show us what love is and where we are failing to love, but only the gospel produces love. Uh, in, in other words, it's um, we don't fall in love with anybody who says love me. We fall in love with people who look at us at our worst and say, I love you. That's what softens our hearts. And so I've never met uh, any person on this planet who is so captured and so captivated by God's unconditional love for them as sinners that their immediate response is then, oh, that's great. Now I can go do whatever I want. Screw God. I've never met anybody like that. What I, what, I, what I do meet are people who are so melted by God's unconditional love and grace to them because they know they don't deserve it. And their immediate response is, take my life, let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. In other words, this, this idea that um, someone can be so captivated and captured by grace that they become worse doesn't exist. If you become worse, it proves that you weren't captured and captivated by grace. Uh, it's kind of like Paul in Romans 6, you know, where he says after in Romans 4 and 5, he's, you know, sort of articulating the radicality of the gospel and the unconditionality of God's one-way love and the substitutionary work of Christ. And he opens chapter 6 and says, I know what you're thinking. Uh, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And uh, because that's the natural question that people ask, wait a second, are you saying that we can do whatever we want and God's going to love us anyway? And Paul says, uh, you know, I know what you're thinking. Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And he says, absolutely not. And then he does something, incre- he does something interesting to me um, and paradigm shifting. Uh, he doesn't then back off of the gospel. He presses the gospel deeper down because his whole point is, if you're hearing what I'm saying and thinking that that sets you free to go out and do whatever you want, it's not because you get the message of the gospel too much. It's because you get it too little. So I'm going to press it in deeper. Yeah. And I, I, that fear that, well, if, if we embrace this idea of one way love or we embrace grace too much, 
then that's going to lead to some sort of antinomianism, no law, we're just going to do whatever we want, and we're going to ignore sin. Yet, I think it's just the exact opposite, where the truth of the matter is, and and First John makes this clear, we all have sin. And if we say that we don't, we're liars. Right. And I think what legalism tends to do is cover up the sin that's that's there, that is evident to God, and even evident in our own lives, but we don't want to admit that. But this, the gospel exposes us for who we really are, sinners, and thus we can have that deeper sense of Christ as Savior only when we when we recognize this sin. Yeah, no, I agree. I I, you know, I would say um you know that the 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 law exposes us, the gospel exonerates us. The law diagnoses us, the gospel delivers us. The, the law shows us our sin. The gospel announces our Savior. And so we constantly need to hear both, even after we become Christians, because uh, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that the law is a divinely sent Hercules to remind us that we are far worse than we think we are. Because even after – what's interesting is I was – you know, my own personal testimony, I grew up in a Christian home and um, but I was in the middle of seven kids, but at 16 years old, I dropped out of high school, got kicked out of my house. And I was just, a, I was a rebel without a cause. Um, and I just went off the deep end and, um, you know, I, when God saved me at 21 years old, when the hound of heaven tracked me down and magnificently defeated me at 21 years old, uh, I knew I was bad. Like I, I there, there was no I, 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 I was not guilty at that point of thinking, well, the reason God paid so much attention to me and rescued me is because I'm a pretty good guy and therefore I'm a valuable member of this team. No one had to tell me I was bad. I knew I was bad. And so I was so mesmerized and captured by the fact that this amazingly gracious, merciful God would love me at my worst, and it was him loving me at my worst that melted my heart and drew me to him. And so I was just, you know, for the first year or two I was a Christian, I couldn't talk about grace, think about grace, sing about grace, hear about grace without weeping, literally. And then, you know, as in my opinion, I started to get better. You know, I started to do things that I knew I should do, and I started to avoid the things that I knew I should avoid, and I started running toward the things that God wanted me to run toward and run away from the things that God wanted me to run away from. And in my mind, I was becoming less desperate, which is a very, very dangerous place to be. And you start going from thinking I'm bad to going, you know what? I'm pretty good. You, you go from thinking I am what is wrong to thinking I am increasingly becoming what is right. And that's a very, very dangerous, dangerous place to be. And, um, and I, I think the purpose of the law, the ongoing role of the law in the life of the Christian is to humble us and to make it very clear that God only accepts Christ's perfection. God doesn't accept you. You are not made right with God because of your progress, however that's defined. Uh, you are made right with God because of Christ's imputed perfection to you. And so the the law is just constantly diagnosing me and revealing parts of me that are worse than I could have ever imagined. And then uh, once you find yourself like the Apostle Paul going, oh, wretched man who will rescue me from this body of death, 
uh, then, you know, God just comes in with this glorious shout. Uh, it is finished. I have taken the penalty that you deserve. And if you are a Christian, you now live your life under a banner that reads, it is finished. And I think, um, you know, so I think that this idea that grace is somewhat dangerous and we need, you know, I, I heard a lot more growing up about what grace wasn't than what it was. You know, it was sort of a grace, like I say, grace with lots of butts and breaks, like the tapping of grace. Yes, grace, but. Um, don't take it too far. It was like, yes, we got to balance it out. And, you know, it's like grace with a bunch of footnotes at the bottom of the page telling you what it's not. Um, and, you know, as a result, I think it's important to, to recognize that um, legalism is what produces lawlessness 10 times out of 10. Legalism causes people to go, I can't do it, so screw it. I'll, I'll just go with however I want. Um, grace alone has the power to melt the heart and create a love for God and others that the law can point out but can't produce. And that's been my testimony. I mean, I, I grew up within the ranks of fundamentalism and we were all about doing X, Y, and Z mm. to the point where many just threw up their hands and said, how can I possibly do this? I can't continue life with this. And I must not be good at this. God must not love me because I'm not doing these things. And it led many to drop out of the church, not because of atheism or doubts about the reliability of scripture, as we're hearing about today, mm. but just simply because I can't do this. And the truth mm. is, they can't. And right. <laughs> that's why we need to yeah. embrace the gospel. Yeah, uh, no, that's exactly right. I wanted to ask yeah. you about something else, because I, th I think you hit on something that is uh, exposing something I see as a major problem. And you know, most of the circles I travel in are your conservative, evangelical, specifically reformed crowd. And one of our common themes, and I saw this within the fundamentalism I grew up in, was everybody else is doing this wrong. And mm. so therefore, whether it's a pride about our theology, a pride about what we're not doing, we're not compromising these areas or we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go and, and we have all of our lists of different things that other people aren't measuring up to and that leads to legalism and that leads to arrogance but it's under the guise of doctrinal purity is, is that something sure. that you would agree with or you would see? oh yeah, yeah yeah oh big time yeah i mean i i told my wife the other day i said you know um i i'm reflecting on my own life and uh you know just other circles that I used to run in and told her theology and the study of theology is a wonderful, great place to go and hide from yourself. It is. Um, I mean, it's a great place to hide from yourself. It's, a, it's actually a great place to hide from God, which is a scary thing to say because when I was as I was studying theology, and I mean, I, I have, that's that's what I am. I mean, by you know, by calling, so to speak. I'm, I mean, I'm a theologian, uh, and so you know, I uh, my study of theology, my my fascination with theology, my um, infatuation with theological categories and figuring things out, and you know, all of that stuff. Um, so much of that got in the way of me recognizing that I was, even after I was saved, a desperate sinner in dire need of the grace and mercy of God. 
Um, you know, I was a professional religionist. I was a professional Christian. I was a pastor. I was a preacher. I was a writer, all of these things. And, uh, you know, it's easy to get lost in, uh, you know, theology, so to speak, um, and forget who you are. And, uh, I, I think that if I were to sort of sum it up in a sense, I would say that um, if being right is more important to us than loving people, something's wrong. <laughs> and, and I know I've said that before and people say, well, loving people would be showing them that they're wrong. And I'm like, if that's your default, if, if your definition of love begins – when mm. showing people where they're wrong, right. you need to rethink something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, well, because no one feels love that way. And you just simply ask them, you say, so if your wife is constantly criticizing what you're doing wrong, do you feel loved from her? I mean, if, if, uh, if you know, I mean, no one feels God. The, the good news of the gospel is that God gave us his best when we were at our worst. And I think that there is a relational um, – there are, there are relational implications and emotional implications of that truth that should make us not soft on uh, – not soft on sin, but soft on sinners. You know? I mean, I, you know, it's one thing to be soft on sin, and we can talk you know, all day about our culture and certain segments of the church and how sin is being redefined or thrown out altogether or whatever. I, I get that. Okay. That's a problem that hasn't been the problem in my circles. <laughs> um, that's been, I know that's the problem in other circles. Um, in my circles, the problem has not been uh, that we're soft on sin. The problem in my circles has been, we are extremely hard on sinners. <laughs> and um, you know, I think that there's, this is why the centrality of the gospel is so important, um, you know, just because the gospel does inform uh, how God relates to us and how, therefore, we should relate to others. God is amazingly gracious and merciful to us. He's, uh, he's forbearing. Um, he is patient. Um, he uh, hugs us when we're – he hugs us when we're dirty. Um, and – I just don't see us doing that a lot with people who crash and burn. And this is, you know, this, uh, as you know, Kevin, you're, and many of your listeners may know this too. I mean, my, you know, my life three years ago, just self-destructed of oh, my own fault. I mean, I self-destructed, um, and lost everything. My marriage, and, uh, broke up my family and ministry and credibility and all of that stuff. And, um, and it was interesting to me to kind of hear, because I had been known for preaching grace for so long, um, people started to make a connection between, well, maybe the reason that he fell the way he did was because of the message he was preaching. They tried to make a theological connection. And I had a friend say recently, when a legalistic Christian falls, we never blame the law mm. of God. So when a grace-centered preacher falls, why do we blame the grace of God? <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I thought was a really good point. In other words, <laughs> you know, grace was not to blame for my fall, for my sin. 
Um, in fact, the, what I would tell people is um, my sin was the result not of believing the gospel too much, but believing the gospel too little in the hour of temptation, the way John Owen puts it. Um, you know, when you are faced with that hour of temptation and uh, if, if you don't believe that everything you need in Christ you already possess, you go looking for that stuff elsewhere, whatever it may be. Um, and that was really, you know, that was really my, you know, my, my guilt there. Um, that's what I was guilty of, not believing the gospel too much, but by believing it too little. And, and you know, I've watched the church and Christians, I've seen the best of the church and the worst of the church as they have responded to my fall. I've seen the best of Christianity and the worst of it. Um, and it's funny because my wife and I were at a, a recovery center speaking in Pontiac, Michigan, uh, in right, I was either right before or right after Thanksgiving. And here's this pack of 300 people. They're in the worst case. I mean, the worst shape imaginable, you know, they're alcoholics, drug addicts, prostitution. I mean, these are people who have really crashed and burned. Um, and not one person there thinks that they're good. Every single one of them knows that they're bad. And so their receptivity to the grace and mercy of God was not, in other words, as I was preaching this stuff or talking about this stuff with them, there was no resistance to it. Like there was no, people who think they're good resist grace. People yeah. who know they're bad don't. Right. And there was such a, there was such a culture of warmth and uh, graciousness and mercy and love and understanding. It was, I remember sitting there going, what would every church in America feel like if it was filled with people who knew they were as bad as these people do? Um, there wasn't judgment. There wasn't finger pointing. There wasn't, you know, uh, just, there wasn't all this stuff. It was everybody knew they were, everybody knew that they were uh, bad people who desperately needed the grace and love and mercy of God. And it wasn't just that they got that with their heads because of their life experience, but because they understood that with their hearts, there was just a, a warmth about it. And I left being around those people not thinking, oh, wow, God's grace is real. I can take advantage of it. I left being around those people going, I, I love God more because I experienced love from these people. I love people more because I've seen the way they love one another. Um, and so I would dare say that I left there more sanctified, less, because I was around bad people rather than being around good people. In terms of application, I, I want to turn toward that person who is struggling. Uh, you know, just having you on the program, I know that there are many who are not going to uh, download this particular podcast. And I've already had people question, well, why would you have this guy on? Don't you know yep. what he's done? And my response is simply, yeah. And, and that's what grace is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. Um, you know, I, I was saddened to hear all uh, the different news and details. But then, you know, it, it wasn't as if you're saying that all of a sudden grace is nullified. Yeah. Because of your actions. Mm. In fact, it just proves that we all are sinful people prone to sin, and we have to fight against that. But the grace of God is always there. That's why we need the grace of after salvation, because my sin has yet to be completely eradicated this side of heaven. And right. I always need to remind myself of the gospel. So, Tully, I want to address the person who's listening to this who has been in that position. He blew it. Uh, whether it's blew it in his marriage or 
wrecked his reputation somehow, got fired from his job or whatever. What is the consolation you want to give to that person who's now struggling with his relationship with God? And then also address what should the church be doing in these situations to point that person back to Christ? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I would say to the person who, to the person who is beating their breast and going, God have mercy on me, a sinner. There's no way God could love me because of what I've done. There's no way God could love me because of who I am. If the whole world knew what goes on inside of my head and inside of my heart, they would abandon me. And I feel like a fraud. I mean, I encounter lots of people like that. Um, and you know, ever since all of this stuff, uh, you know, went down with me, um, I, you know, I've had people open up and tell me stories that they would have probably never told me before, uh, because they feel like they, their, their tragic stories are relatable to me now in a way that they weren't before. Um, and so, you know, their fears, their insecurities, all that stuff. And so, um, you know, I would want to say to those people, first of all, um, you no amount of failure on your part will ever tempt God to leave you or forsake you. That this, that your standing with God and God's love to you is in no way dependent on you, what you right. do or don't do. It is entirely dependent on what Jesus has done for you. So you are clothed in an irremovable suit of forgiveness. You are locked in a cage of imputed righteousness. Mm. Um, and there's nothing you can do to get out of it. Uh, on the other hand, what I would say to this person, because we have to make a distinction between uh, vertical condemnation and horizontal consequences. Um, you know, my, my sin did not cause God to leave me or forsake me. I am not condemned, uh, but I will for the rest of my life have to endure the horizontal consequences of my sin. Um, and so how do we make sense of that? Um, and how do we hope in and through that? And I think for me, recognizing that God uh, uses the worst parts of us, the broken parts of us, the dysfunctional parts of us, um, the bad parts of us. That's the stuff. The, our weaknesses, not our strengths. Our failures, not our successes. Um, that's the stuff. Those are the ingredients that God uses uh, to communicate his love and grace to other broken people, to other people who, like me, will wrestle with guilt and shame and regret for the rest of our lives. Um, God never promises to rescue us from that stuff in this life, but he does promise to be with us when we struggle with that stuff in this life. And it's that notion of God being with us, never abandoning us, never leaving us or forsaking us and believing, uh, which I didn't for a long time. For the first two years, I just didn't believe it. I'm like, there's no way that God, I didn't doubt that God loved me. Um, there were times I doubted whether or not I loved him, but there is never a doubt in my mind that I, that he loved me, but there was no way I, there was no way that I was able to believe that somehow, some way God would use all of this messiness in my life to minister to other people who have endured some of the same stuff, who have suffered some of the same stuff, who have had to go through some of the same stuff. And 
I'm just now discovering that. Um, and I, I think that there is a, uh, there is a huge, huge, huge need inside the church for increased transparency and honesty. I mean, here's, I, I, I'll, I say it to, I say it this way to people sometimes. Um, is the church the first place or the last place you think to run to when you've totally blown it? And most people do not say the church is the first place I go to. <laughs> they just don't. Um, they don't feel like the church is a safe place to confess your sins and secrets. Um, and that's sad to me. And I don't have an answer for that other than possibly uh, preachers uh, having a fresh encounter with the inflexible demands of God's law to the point where they are so humble and see themselves first and foremost as the chief of sinners. In other words, if you don't see, if, if you are not the worst sinner you know, you do not know yourself very well. Uh, and preachers need to embody that too. And I think uh, if we spent our time uh, confessing our sins before we confess the sins of other people, um, I think it would potentially create an environment that would at least feel safer right. for people to come and to be real and confess their sins and their secrets without fearing that they're going to be cast out. Um, and so, you know, I just, uh, I, I find myself, I, I am no longer a pastor and I'm not uh, a church leader and I'm no longer ordained. And in that sense, I've been out of the church for the last two and a half years. And what that has done is it's forced me to um, engage with people that I would never have engaged with as a pastor. And the kinds of things I am hearing from people, the stories they're telling me, lots of them non-Christians, um, are just amazing to me. I, it's kind of like uh, Christians seem to be more shocked by sin than non-Christians, right. <laughs> which is mind-blowing to me. I'm thinking, gosh, uh, when it's safer to go to a bar or a gym um, and confess your sins and secrets than it is to go to church, when it's safer to tell your non-Christian friends what you've done than it is your Christian friend. There's something messed up about that. Right. Um, and it just proves that maybe we don't get how, mm. how bad we are and how good God is to the degree that we need to. All right. Well, we wrap up every program with uh, some recommendations for books or resources to dig a little bit deeper into the subject. And I want to recommend uh, a couple of books by, by Tullian. Uh, first, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And then the book I, I've got here in my hand, Glorious Ruin, which was a game changer for me. I think I, I, I mentioned this in an email, but I, I'm not a very fast reader. I, I, I do read. I do read a lot, but I don't read very fast. And this book I, I read in about two sittings, which was abnormal for me, but I, and I couldn't wait to uh, – <laughs> it was early, early in the morning. I couldn't wait to wake up my wife to say, you've got to read this. So <laughs> I highly recommend that book. Also – uh, you mentioned One Way Love, uh, devotional as well. And then two other books, um, not written by you, but still good. Uh, the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brendan Manning. Excellent book. Excellent great book. book. And then another devotional, Everyday Prayers, uh, 365 Days to a Gospel-Centered Faith by Scotty Smith, has been a, a wonderful uh, blessing to me. Tully, are there any other books or resources that you would recommend? Oh, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I would, um, I would recommend anything 
by a now deceased Episcopalian priest by the name of Robert Capon, C-A-P-O-N. Hmm. Now, Capon has some funny ideas about some things. And so, like with every writer, you have to chew off the meat and spit out the bones. He may right. give you a mind-blowing paragraph on you know page two, and then you get to page three, and you find yourself scratching your head going, that's not true. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Don't, don't just read books by someone you agree every, right. you know, with everything about because you'll miss well, a lot. Well, we did a podcast on discernment, so these guys, these listeners know that. Yeah, I'm yeah sure. that's good. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead. Good. Sorry. So Capen, um, there's, there are two excellent books by my mentor and sort of spiritual father, and uh, by the name of his name is Paul Zoll, Z-A-H-L. He wrote an excellent book called Grace in Practice. Hmm. And then he wrote another book um, called Who Will Deliver Us, which was a total game changer for me. The subtitle of that book is The Present Power of the Death of Christ, which is just fantastic stuff. Um, and then I, another great book is a book uh, by a guy named William Hordern, H-O-R-D-E-R-N. Uh, and the name of that book is Living by Grace. That, too, was a game changer for me. Excellent book. Mm. Um, and then two more, real quick. Sure. <laughs> you, you asked a loaded question, man. No, hey, uh, go for it. Um, two more, real quick. One is uh, by a um, a guy named Gerhard Ferdy, F-O-R-D-E, and he wrote an excellent book called On Being a Theologian of the Cross, which mm. is excellent, absolutely excellent. It's, it sounds, sounds uh, you know, sort of heady, but it's actually a very easy-to-read book. Um, and then what was the next one I was going to say? Um, oh, a book called Sanctification uh, by a guy named Harold Sanctbile, S-E-N-K-B-E-I-L, Sanctification by Harold Sanctbile. All of those books, if I was stranded on a deserted island and could only take five or six books with me, apart from the Bible, of course, those would be the books I would take. Well, thank you, Tullian, for taking the time and uh, spending time with us and the listeners. And thank all of you for listening and join us back next week. We'll have another great guest. Until then, don't forget to share this with your friends. Read us on iTunes. Check us out on Twitter at Basic Bible Cast or check out the website at www.basicbiblepodcast.org. So thanks for listening. See you next time.